following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. We have recently, just last week actually, finished up going through the book of Ephesians. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and you will recall, those of you who have been here, that he wrote the letter while under house arrest in Rome, and it was around A.D. 60 when he wrote that letter and sent it off to the church at Ephesus. Now, what's interesting is about 35 years later, the church at Ephesus received another letter. It wasn't from the Apostle Paul. This time, it was from the risen Savior, from Jesus himself. And and you guys are looking at me just like they did last night. (laughs) What are you talking about? I am talking about Revelation chapter 2 the letter written to the church at Ephesus by Jesus, right? Okay. Now, I thought, and that's what we're going to be doing today, and it's just today, and I'm not going to be doing the rest of the letters or the rest of Revelation. Just want to look at this letter written to the church at Ephesus by Jesus that came to them 35 years later. So I thought this would be good to look at. In other words, how were they doing? You know, having received the instruction from the Apostle Paul, how were they doing now 35 years later? This provides for us this great opportunity to see were they still standing their ground? Were they remaining firm? Were they steadfast? just as the apostle had instructed. Were they still being rooted and established in love? Ephesians 3.17. Were they still living a life worthy of the calling that they have received? Ephesians 4.1. Were they being imitators of God as dearly loved children? Ephesians 5.1. Were they remaining true to God's word and letting no one deceive them with empty false words? Ephesians 5, 6, were they still utilizing the full armor of God, extinguishing the flaming arrows of the evil one, fighting the fight of faith with great passion? Ephesians chapter 6. So then, how had they fared? How were they doing? Almost four decades later, as Jesus begins to write to this church, He does so initially in glowing terms, commending them for their good works and for their doctrinal purity. It appears that the church in Ephesus was a a busy congregation involved in many, many ministries. So let's pick it up at verse 1, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, in order for us to recognize this description that Christ gives of himself, we only need to go back a few verses into chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says there, this is John speaking, I turned around to see the voice 
that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with the golden sash around his chest. Obviously, we know who that is describing, don't we? Unlike Paul, who wrote from distant Rome, Jesus is right there in their midst. He's writing to them right there in their midst. He has his own firsthand intel, if you will, of this congregation. He walks among them. He examines them from every angle. Noteworthy quality or embarrassing imperfection, none of that can escape his notice. He's aware of their every thought, their every intention and motive, caring enough for them about their well-being that he will both encourage them and also correct them. The lampstands symbolize the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the seven letters that we find in Revelation 2 and 3. And the seven stars represent the angels referred to here as in referring to the, the pastors and the elders of those churches is what those represent. Jesus does walk in the midst of his church. Amen. How many recognize and realize whether you feel it or not, and obviously we can't see him, but he's here. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad for that, aren't you? He is here. He is in our midst. He knows everything about this church, everything about every church. He knows everything about you as an individual. He holds the stars in his hand, which lets us know that he is sovereignly in control. He speaks to the churches and he says to them, anyone who has an ear, listen up. Listen in to what I have to say. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. Let's read verses 2 and 3 now. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And so after a thorough examination, Christ offers his findings, his, his, this is his report, his diagnosis, we might could say, and he noted three specific things about them, commends them in three specific areas. They stood for him. So here we are a few years later, they're still standing firm, staying at the task. They had kept at it faithfully. The Lord acknowledges their hard work in his service. He, he complimented the church for working hard and doing good deeds, serving nonstop. The, the picture he gives is a, is a diligent, conscientious, responsible, and involved congregation. They weren't slackers. They weren't procrastinators. The church in Ephesus kept busy, no doubt, in serving in ways such as caring for the sick, sheltering the homeless, feeding the hungry, 
visiting the prisoners and clothing widows and orphans and making sure that their needs were being met. Christ also commended them for their patient endurance and perseverance in trials. The word endurance that is being used here comes from a Greek term that implied perseverance under extreme hardship. So we're not just talking about the day-to-day stuff here. It's, it's above that, extreme hardship in the face of life-threatening challenges or against seemingly impossible odds. The Ephesian Christians faced special challenges because they refused to bow their knee to the goddess Diana, as it was known by the Romans, Artemis, as it was known by the Greeks. When we went through this letter, you might recall that they had this temple in Ephesus that boasted of a thousand temple prostitutes. It was an actual, uh, oh, the term just left me, wonder of the ancient world, this temple of Artemis or Diana. And just real quickly, it's interesting for me to know, just I'm taking a little sidetrack here real quickly, that Rome, like the Grecians, they, they, they boasted of their openness to religions. They had their Parthenon, and they had all of their statues of many gods. I mean, emperor worship, of course, was important to the Romans, but they were open to all the other things except for when it came to Christianity. Isn't that interesting? And isn't that what we find today? Everything's fine, everything's wide open, but it better not be Christianity because of there being one God. And we cannot bow our knee to any false religion or false immoral type of living and practices. And they were not bowing the knee to those things. Some of them had been saved out of that kind of immorality. There's no way that they were going back. They found Jesus. Why would they, right? And so they would be facing, because of that, tremendous challenges. They would have been objects of physical violence, social ostracism, slander, and economic repression. Yet they worked, they served, and they endured their being commended for. They bore up under that kind of heavy load. And he commended them for their doctrinal discernment, They stood for the truth. They didn't tolerate false teaching. The Ephesians put so-called apostles to the test and took a stand against, as we're going to see here in a little bit, a group known as the Nicolaitans, a group of false teachers, active in Ephesus, also down the road from them in another town called Pergamum. They got a letter as well in Revelation. Apparently... Their practices related to participation in idolatry and sexual immorality, perhaps combining, and this is tragic, combining the worship of God, the one true God, along with pagan temple worship. That's tragic, isn't it? Which would, I think, put them in the wicked people category, as we read here. This church had stayed at it, folks. They labored hard and long doing God's work and had not grown weary at it. That's good, isn't it? 
They weren't looking to be entertained. They were in the trenches. They were on the battlefield serving when and where it was needed. Jesus lets them know that he recognizes their loyalty and their faithfulness to him, the faithful one, to the truth of God. They were doctrinally sound. The word of God was central in all that they did. I think that if you and I were living in this area during this time in the first century and we were looking for a church, we would, I think, no doubt, would have been drawn to the church in Ephesus. We'd look at all of the ministries and how involved they were in the community, and we'd say, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Upon our first and second and third visit, or even years of being a member, we may not have ever realized that something wasn't quite right. Everything looked good on the surface, but something wasn't quite right. Something was missing. The one that walks among the lampstands, the churches, the one who knows the heart of every believer in that church, in this church, found something wrong. It was hidden from their eyes, from the eyes of the people, but not hidden from Jesus. The one who's According to Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, the one whose eyes are like blazing fire had discovered a significant flaw. The church that had everything seemingly was missing the one thing that Jesus truly deserves. They had everything but the greatest thing. Look at verse 4 with me. Yet, it's like, whoa, whoa, put on the brakes here. Try to picture yourself in the audience when this letter is initially being read to the church at Ephesus in the first century. And you've been, you've been hearing these commendations coming from the Lord himself. Your buttons are popping. Pride is bursting. <laughs> it's just all over the place. And then all of a sudden, whoever is reading the letter out loud says, and yet... Wait, what? And yet, I hold this against you. Whew. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Chilling words. What do you think? Imagine the Lord Jesus coming to you and saying something along those lines. I, <laughs> something like, hey, I know you think you're all that, <laughs> but yet I have this that I have found that isn't exactly pleasing me. Jesus looks at this church and sees that the thrill, that the love was gone. The fire of their pure devotion had become dim and cold. This first love probably, I think, also refers to the words that we find Jesus speaking to us in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Remember those words? They would fall right into this. 
the corrective exhortation concerns the fact that although they labored faithfully, they were always hard at it, busy serving. At it faithfully, showing discernment doctrinally. They had left their first love. What we do for the Lord, church, is obviously very, very important. But let's also be reminded that the reason we do it is very, very important as well. Notice he doesn't say that they lost their first love. He says they left it. They had forsaken it. They've moved away from it. They've abandoned it. They had lost their passion for Christ. For all who are committed to doctrinal faithfulness, here is a challenging reminder that the ultimate measure of a church is not found in its programs. It's not found in its achievements. It's not about its reputation or doctrinal belief. It is all about its love. Amen? Amen. The church at Ephesus was hardworking, but without a burning fire or love for Jesus. Somehow that had gotten left behind. Jesus is saying, I miss the love that you had for me at first. He misses the extravagance of praise and the full-on sacrifice of their hearts. As you all know, <laughs> I'm tired of it and I'm finished with this Christianity stuff. Doesn't happen like that, does it? It happens over time. It happens through the years. It happens after hardships and questions that you can't get answers for, trials that don't seem to have any reason or rhyme, loss of health, loss of hope, loss of a loved one. In the midst of the Ephesians' hard work and endurance for Jesus, their love for him had begun to diminish, decline. Thirty-five years earlier, Paul closed the letter that he had written them, commending them for their love. This is how he finished that letter to the Ephesians. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. But now, not so much. Thirty-five years later, the love that had characterized their life and energized their faith had lost its original strength and effectiveness. It wasn't enough that they continued to go through the motions because that is all that they are doing, going through the motions. Yeah, they are a well-oiled machine, but the love is gone. Jesus wanted more than their good deeds. He wants more than their hard work. He wants more than their doctrinal discernment. He wanted the devotion and the adoration of their hearts more than anything. The Ephesian believers were so busy maintaining their Christianity, maintaining their separation from the world that they were neglecting their adoration of the one who saved them in the first place. Labor is no substitute for love. Neither is purity a substitute for passion. 
The church must have both if it is ever to please our living God. Both. Love is the key. Amen. Paul understood that. Probably why he wrote, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Where is that from? Where is it from? The Bible, right? <laughs> How about 1 Corinthians 13? Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking, right? <laughs> Moving on, in verse 5, Jesus gives them a remedy. He is so good, isn't he? He is so good. He is so faithful. He provides them a remedy, which is also for us, to reignite the fire that once burned in them, to rekindle the love that they once had. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, consider, also could be translated, remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. First they were, as it says, to consider or remember to go back to where they began, to where we began, when we had first had that passion and that power for Jesus Christ. It grieves God's heart, folks, when we step out of love for him. Oh, sure, we're busy, we're serving. On the surface, it looks like everything is just fine and good. But it's Jesus with those blazing eyes <laughs> that looks past the surface and sees what's really going on in our hearts. It grieves God's heart when we step out of love for him and when we don't love those around us as well. Now, I want you to recognize and understand that the sequence given us here is important. Remembering how God's spirit once worked in their hearts, producing genuine love would, the whole idea would lead to a change of attitude and behavior, which points to the next step that Jesus provides in his remedy, repentance. Repentance. We find here that true repentance is connected to doing the works that you did at first. It's a U-turn. That's what repentance is. You're going this way, and it's the wrong way, and Jesus says, I need you to do a U-turn and get back to what you were doing that was the right way when you were loving me with all that was within you. Do a U-turn, heading back in the direction of Jesus. They had gotten so busy, so task-oriented, they had left Jesus somewhere back there, and they didn't 
even know it. Jesus says, do what you used to do. Repeat what they were doing before. Part of the remedy here. Remember how it used to be when you were amazed by the Lord's goodness, his faithfulness, and his love for you. Remember what it was like when you could hardly wait to get to church, when you could hardly wait to be a part of that small group or that Bible study, when you could hardly wait to sing your praises and your worship unto God rather than just standing there cold and lifeless. Remember what it used to be like when you loved Jesus and sacrificed for him was nothing. But now it's a chore. And now you can think of all kinds of reasons and excuses why you can't do this and can't do that. Where's the love? Is what Jesus is saying to us. Do again, he's saying, what you were doing then. Acts of love accompanying their passion for truth. And the idea here, folks, is do it now, not later. Now. Now. Jesus gives a warning. If you don't repent and if you don't love, I won't stay where love does not exist. Chilling words, I think, again. If you don't love me and those around me or around you, I will come. And he's not referring to his second coming, to his return. He's coming. He's talking about coming in judgment at any time. He says, I will come and this church, talking to the Ephesian church at this point, will be extinguished. Jesus warns that this is no small matter. Please understand that it is not a small matter. Removing the Ephesians church's lampstand means removing his recognition of them as a church. Because a loveless church, folks, is in truth not a church at all. The glorious city of Ephesus is today nothing but a heap of stones. There is no church there. There is no light shining. The lampstand is gone. The choice given to them, the choice given to us this morning is repentance or removal. What will you choose? Jesus is letting us know that he will not stay in a church where there is not true love because without love, nothing else matters. Look at verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitans were agnostics, who considered themselves the spiritual elite of their day, who loved lording it over others, who liked being in control, kind of in a dictatorship kind of style. They, could tell, they felt like they could tell you what you could do, not do, who you could marry, not marry, so on and so forth. That's who the Nicolaitans were. And they taught that the earth and the flesh was separate from the spiritual realm. A false doctrine, obviously. And therefore, because they taught that and pushed that, therefore it was okay then to indulge in whatever pleased you, especially with regards to immorality. 
Jesus doesn't like it, folks, <laughs> when people usurp the authority that only belongs to him. Nor does he like it when people dilute the truth that is only found in him. Amen. Verse 7, whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The words, obviously, the words of the Spirit are the words of Christ. And here's something interesting in the Jewish context. To hear is a synonym for to obey. Latch on to that truth right there, would you? Because I think sometimes we kind of adopt this attitude, this idea that, hey, I was there, I attended church, I heard the message, and yeah, and you know what, I even, I even liked it, and I even agree with it, and then to go out those doors and do nothing about it, again, would be tragic. Just hearing it does not mean you are obeying it. It's got to be lived out and obeyed. He goes on and says, to the one who is victorious, also translated overcomes, conquering is the consequence, church, of obeying. Amen? The consequence of obeying what the Spirit is saying to the believer. The overcomer is the victor, is the conqueror. What is it that is to be overcome? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> what the Bible tells us, everything and anything that pulls our heart and our love away from the Lord and attaches it to this world, anything. That is what needs to be overcome in our lives. And you and I need to be upfront and honest with ourselves. Amen? And stop with the rationalizations and lying to ourselves and listening to the voice of the enemy who would lie to us and deceive us. Got to listen to what the Spirit is saying because the Spirit of God will not lie to you and will not deceive you. Whatever possessions, whatever pleasures, whatever it is that has dampened the believer's first love for Jesus, that is what it is that needs to be overcome. And then he says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise was a Persian word for garden, which was used to designate, obviously here, the heavenly garden of God. If we overcome, we will enjoy perfect fellowship with God just as it was before the fall took place in the Garden of Eden. This is what it's dialing in here for us. Now check this out. The Garden of Eden, as you, most of you are, are, are aware, contained two trees, right? Well, there was probably more than two trees, but two that we know of. They had names, the Tree of Life and also the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 tells us about that. Eating from the tree of life brought eternal life with God. Eating from the tree of knowledge brought the ability to, to know and to discern between good and evil. And therefore, obviously, the ability to choose evil. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, 
as we know, they, they disobeyed God, resulting in death and sin, entering the world for the first time. Been here ever since, hasn't it? So they were removed from Eden and were no longer allowed to eat from the tree of life. And it has been unavailable to all people ever since. But there's good news here, church, because we've got a glorious future, amen, and a wonderful hope. Eventually, evil will be destroyed, and believers will be brought back into a restored paradise. In the new heaven and in the new earth that John writes about in the book Revelation, it lets us know that everyone there will eat once again from the tree of life. And from eating that it represents our having eternal life with God forever and ever and ever. Eating from the tree of life pictures the gift of eternal life. But not only that, this is, this is so, so cool. Also, it speaks of and points to the fruit of the Spirit. John writes in Revelation 22, verse 2, down the middle of the great street of the city, the new Jerusalem in the new heaven, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. There it is. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What did the Ephesians lack, folks? Love. What would they get if they repented and changed their ways and went back to the things that they first were doing when they first loved Jesus? What would they get? The fruit of the Spirit that comes from the tree of life. The fruit of the Spirit, meaning love, would, become, would come to them. And according to church historian Ignatius, Ephesus did repent, but within another generation, a biblical generation is 40 years, it had begun to cool once again. And as I said a little bit ago, the, in the end, Jesus kept his, his word. Today, there is no church in Ephesus. There is no Ephesus. It's just, again, a pile of stones, the lampstand was removed. The light went out. It's never been rekindled since. The church of Ephesus got careless, folks. Got careless with what mattered the most. They neglected their love for Christ. Oh, sure, they were busy, and it all looked good, but beneath it all, the love was gone. The question we must ask ourselves today, are we guilty of that same neglect? Is your love for God what it ought to be? Do you need to experience the cure for the all too common cold heart? <laughs> if so, then come to Jesus and come now. And remember and repent and repeat 
I've added a couple. Renew and restore the things that you did at first, which typically means going back to the basics. We need to look again at Jesus, get our eyes back on him. I haven't said it all morning. I'm going to say it now. Get our eyes off of us. Get ourselves out of the way and get our eyes back on him and put him in place, his rightful place, his proper place in our hearts and in our lives. Our eyes back on him. Because when we do, you can know, you can take to the bank that Jesus will once again come with your eyes on him and rekindle that love that has grown cold. He'll rekind it. He'll stoke the fires and you'll find yourself back to where you were when you first got saved. When you were first walking with Jesus when everything was exciting and you couldn't wait, you couldn't wait, you couldn't wait to do anything that involved serving and sacrificing Jesus. It was back in those days when you was like you heard about someone announcing a trip to Mexico to build a home. You said, yeah, sign me up. Put me in, coach. Back in those kind of days, rather than whatever it is your excuses are today. And I realize when I say that that not everyone can go and there's, there's stuff. And I, I understand that. But what we're talking about is attitude. You understand that, right? We're talking about our attitudes. The attitudes of our hearts and the desire of our heart. And who's first, us or him? Our will or his will? Love is rekindled by looking at that which is altogether lovely at looking at Jesus. So if your love has grown cold, gaze at Jesus. Get your eyes back on him. Look to the beauty of the one who died for us and who lives in us now. Amen. Father, we thank you for your love and for your sacrifice for us. You have become our supreme example. You call us to follow you, to be in step with you, and to love the way you love. God, forgive us. Forgive us for allowing our hearts to grow cold. Forgive us, God, for allowing other things to become more important than you. Draw us back. Set our hearts on fire for you once again, Lord. To that place where we can hardly wait to be with you and in your presence and with the people of God to sacrifice for you. That's what you've called us to do. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. Comfort us. Convict us. Do whatever it is you need to do in our hearts today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I